0: You're listening to Beyond Bones, a podcast by the Houston Museum of Natural Science. I'm your host, Chris Wells. We're all about looking beyond the bones, beyond the artifacts, beyond the physical remains that are housed in our exhibit, to tell the stories of triumph and tribulation uh, behind some of the objects on display in our collection, and some of them that aren't on display in our collection. This week on Beyond Bones, we're going to be talking about a topic that's a little bit different from the subjects that we normally cover on our podcast, uh, but one that is interesting nonetheless. It was inspired by an exhibit that we've had here for about a year. The exhibit is called Death by Natural Causes, and it's basically about every way that the natural world can kill you. Not like heart attacks or strokes or anything like that, what you typically call natural causes. We're talking about nature, every way that nature can kill you. It's a really interesting exhibit. And the topic that it inspired us to talk about today is syphilis. Now, since syphilis is a a, a venereal disease and we're going to be talking about how the disease is contracted and the disease's effects on the body, um, there might be some material that is a little inappropriate for younger listeners. Um, So just that warning before we start. However, don't go because it is going to be a really fun talk and we're not just going to talk about medicine and the human body. We're going to be talking about culture. For example, did you know that fashion was affected by syphilis. That's right, everybody had syphilis and you had to find ways to cover up the effects of the disease. Also, laws were affected by the disease. There was a lot of malpractice going on when it comes to syphilis, especially when it came to experimenting on ways to uh, cure the disease and that caused quite a controversy and human rights issues were uh, brought up. Um, And we're gonna be talking about all of that. Today, we're talking to Nicole Temple, curator of our new special exhibition, Death by Natural Causes. How are you today?
1: Excellent. And you?
0: I am well. And Dr. Steve Norris, who is professor and vice chair of research at the McGovern School of Medicine at UT Health. How are you today?
2: Doing well. Thanks, Chris. Glad to be here.
0: Oh, yeah. And so today, we're going to be talking about syphilis, which is an interesting topic to talk about. Like, that's not something that people generally spend their days discussing, you know, in normal conversation. And because of that, I kind of want to start this episode by talking about why we should be discussing syphilis. What's its significance to our culture today? And why should we really care about something that is preventable? What do you all have to say?
2: Well, I think uh, people tend to think of syphilis as being something that occurred in the past, and it's very much with us today. Um, there's somewhere between 18 million and 56 million cases of syphilis at any one time in the world. Um, I think Nicole mentioned that there's something like a million. Um,
1: a million uh, babies born um, every year that have congenital syphilis. And the mortality rate of congenital syphilis is about 50%, either stillborn or born slightly after death. And one of the problems is um, the way that syphilis works, which we can talk about in a minute. You may not realize that you have syphilis until the baby is already infected, so you don't get treated for it. But if you knew it, it's easily treatable. So they get all the way through the pregnancy, the baby um, is born, and then it's got severe birth defects because of the, because of the disease. Wow. All right. So it is something
0: that's important and something that people need to know about and talk about today. Um, let's talk about like the disease itself. Like first of all, um, you know, people have maybe misconceptions about the disease or, or maybe they don't. Maybe it's as bad as they say it is. Like what exactly is syphilis? What does it do to your body?
2: Well, syphilis is an infection, so it's caused by a bacterium, and it's called tryponema pallidum, which uh, sounds like a mouthful, but what it really means is pale spinning thread. So you can think of it that way. Uh, It's a very tiny organism, and even one organism can infect an individual, and uh, it's, of course, mostly transmitted through sexual contact, with the exception of uh, congenital syphilis, which is Um, transmitted from mother to to fetus. Um, Once the infection occurs, then the typical lesion that occurs is called a chancre, and that is teeming with organisms. It has very high concentration, but surprisingly, oftentimes, it's not noticed, and so it'll go away after a few weeks. And um, what can occur after that is what is called secondary syphilis, where there are lesions all over the body because the organism disseminates and causes infection throughout the body. One of the things about syphilis is that once the infection occurs, uh, if it's not treated, that person will stay infected potentially for life. And so in the later stages, actually called late syphilis, what can occur are problems with the heart, or uh, problems with uh, the central nervous system. It can cause a a form of dementia. Um, And it can also cause uh, problems with um, joints and other uh, problems.
1: So one of the questions I had for you, Steve, is um, when people think of the tertiary stage of syphilis, they always think of people without their noses or having that saddle nose. What about the disease affects your face and your your tissues like that?
2: Well, one thing that we've found with uh, studies is the organism actually likes lower temperatures. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that it can grow better in tissue uh, that is close to the skin. So um, that's one reason that the nose may be affected more than other places.
1: So it it survives inside the body, but it does visible, terrible damage the further out you get towards the outside of the body.
2: Yeah, and I think a lot of people think, well, it only causes damage on the outside, but it gives uh, also a lot of damage inside, Mm -hmm. and uh, that's what can be life-threatening. Wow. And and the big danger
0: is that the first couple stages are not particularly painful or scary. So somebody's just like, oh, okay, this is a weird mark on my body, but I'm going to move on and then it goes away. But they keep that. And I guess that's how congenital syphilis becomes such a big problem because so many people walk around and they don't even know that they have the disease.
2: And actually more people are diagnosed with what's called latent infection where they don't have any visible sign of the disease. Uh, but they have uh, reactivity of antibodies that can be detected with a blood test. And so um, most of the cases are actually diagnosed at that stage so that people are totally unaware that they've been infected.
0: That's crazy. And so what's the mortality rate, I guess? We should figure that out. Like for late-stage syphilis, I guess. Like is there a point when it's too late to get treatment?
1: Well, and with modern medicine, you don't not very many people in developed countries get to the third stage. in In developing countries, I would not say that that is true.
2: Yeah, so in the United States, I guess we're lucky in a way in that we get excellent accident, accidentally treated for uh, syphilis uh, when we take uh, penicillin for strep throat, for example. So it's actually quite rare uh, for people to have late syphilis, which is the most dangerous stage. Um, In the United States, whereas in other parts of the world, that's probably not true that there will be people that actually die of syphilis. And I think in the days when antibiotics were not available, uh, roughly, say, 10 to 20% of people died that were infected.
0: That's fascinating. So today in the U.S., at least, you can accidentally be treated for syphilis. Yeah. That's today, good treatment's
1: no big deal. Like, you get your your z pack, and you're kind of good to go. But uh, historically, it's been – treatments have been terrible. Um, so uh, Steve and I had a conversation before we started this podcast. Uh-huh. But um, we were talking about ways in which um, – Syphilis, syphilis was treated in one of the most effective ways was mercury in various versions of mercury. However, um, in giving somebody mercury, you're also poisoning them at the same time. So you may be destroying the spirochetes, but you're also destroying tissues in the person's body. Mm.
0: So the treatment might kill you first.
1: Uh,
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that's uh, certainly possible and really um, – the mercury treatment started in the 1800s and at that time there was no other available treatment for syphilis and so people thought, well, let's give this a try. And um, a treatment with mercury can cause all sorts of uh, damage, uh, it can cause salivation to excess and and uh, it's essentially like any other heavy metal, it'll cause poisoning. And so um, it it had to be used with great care. And even in those cases, probably a lot of the damage that occurred in the patient was due to the mercury treatment. Mm-hmm.
0: And some of these treatments were really bizarre. Like we, I, I remember um, hearing about like a mercury steam bath at one point. Um, can we, t- let's talk a little bit about some of the stranger, because it's not like people are just like, some, some people were just taking mercury pills or drinking a little bit, but other people were finding very creative ways to apply it, weren't they?
1: It came in salves, it came in steam baths, different ointments, they would take it internally. Um, And in fact, in the death by natural causes exhibit we have here, um, we've got two different Medications. One is the calomel, which um, is a, sort of a derivative of calamine lotion that you would find in the store today. It's different, but it's a similar concept. And the other one, there was a blue star ointment, and both of them contained mercury originally. And the blue star ointment was uh, for eyes, um, and then the calomel was for putting topically on your skin. Um, but they, they, yeah, mercury. is not great for you in any way that they could give it to you. Somebody was figuring out how to do that. but And this
0: is what I find fascinating because mercury is deceptive. So, for example, calomel lotion, um, applied topically, it has a certain effect to the body that makes it seem like it's helpful to you. Is that right? For the longest time it was used, I know that people would rub it on infants who were cranky. Mm -hmm. And it would – what would it do to them exactly to make them a little more like controllable? I'm not sure in that (laughs) case, but uh,
2: the most often – uh, most common use, I should say, is uh, in treatment of things like poison oak and poison ivy, mm-hmm. where it decreased the inflammation, so it made it less itchy. Um, and actually, uh, mercury compounds were used as late as uh, World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were given to the troops uh, to help uh, prevent the development of syphilis and um, to use as an ointment. Um, and really, um, it's only been since the 1940s that uh, its use had been discontinued for either prevention or treatment of syphilis.
1: Yeah, once, once we had uh, penicillin and antibiotics, a whole new world of treatment opened up to this.
2: Yeah, and along the way, um, there was actually a Nobel Prize awarded for use of malaria to treat syphilis, which seems really odd to give one disease to try to cure another but it was a form of malaria that uh, tends to have a rather short course, and, uh, and I mentioned the temperature effect before, and the fever caused by malaria actually uh, helped to clear the, the syphilis organism so that uh, that infection at least was tampened down. I can't say that it was uh, cured completely.
1: And then you could use the quinine to cure the malaria. But that sort of says something about how interested people were in finding a cure for malaria or for syphilis, that this seemed like a reasonable solution. And it was such a profound discovery that somebody was awarded a Nobel Prize for it.
2: And then also another uh, treatment that was developed uh, was salversan, which was a compound that uh, Paul Ehrlich developed in the early 1900s. Um, you know, it's actually discovered around 1908, only three years after T. palatum, uh, the syphilis organism, was first identified. And uh, it was actually developed first for treating trypanosoma, or sleeping sickness. And they tried it on a syphilis patient. It worked well. And so within a year after that, <laughs> amazingly enough, after one year, um they started using it in patients. It was produced by Bayer in in Germany, and and used to treat thousands of patients. But this
0: was like a this was a poisonous material, right? This was can, what was it made out
2: of again exactly? It has arsenic in it, and uh, so it's an arsenic compound. Um, so obviously, it had to be used with care. Um, the literature I've seen uh, says that. They revised it, so they made it neo-salversan and it was more soluble, and with that, they didn't have to give as much, and so it was less toxic.
0: But like you were saying, Nicole, I mean, that kind of gives you an idea of how important it was to find a cure. It's like, okay, let's just give them this very poisonous material that will hurt them, but it'll hurt the disease more, or let's give them a disease that kills people, but not all the time. To ki you know, to cure this disease.
1: Yeah, it's it's crazy. And you're willing to take the side effects of like liver damage and you know, this living with malaria for the rest of your life in order to get rid of the syphilis, because the syphilis is so much worse.
0: And this is a similar train of thought to, for example, like chemotherapy, right? I mean, this is it's something that is bad for you, but also bad for the thing that's hurting you. And so I find that interesting, I guess. Like, I doubt that it actually, this kind of thought began with syphilis or anything like that. But there was a point when people started using things, I don't know.
1: It's like the lesser of the evils. It's like the news. lesser
0: of the evils. And eventually they kind of came on that concept. It's like, oh yeah, these medicines are actually really bad for us, but let's try to use them in a more strategic way, I guess.
1: Well, a
2: lot of the treatments that were present in the 1800s and 1900s uh, were quite toxic and um not very effective. And so uh that was really common. So having something that had any effect at all yeah. was great.
1: Yeah, and we've definitely come a long way from balancing the four humors.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I read somewhere, and I don't know if this is correct, that the use of mercury actually goes all the way back to that concept of balancing the humors because it would cause you to salivate. I think you mentioned that. Um, And so they're like, oh good, Yeah, this is salivate and sweat, so it's like, oh good, they're balancing their humors, they're getting rid of this vile liquid. So interesting, but it persisted a long time, long time after scientific methods of, of making medicine were used. I want to go back real quick cuz you know there's this big misconception about the origins of syphilis, right? How, you know, it's almost like the new world's revenge, like Europeans brought so much horrible stuff over from Europe, all the diseases that devastated native populations and then that's like the one thing they had that hurt Europe. But that that really might not be true, right? Let's talk a little bit about the origins of syphilis and and its surprisingly ancient origins.
1: Yes, Um, so there's still a lot of debate out there about where syphilis came from, who introduced it to who, Um, and if you look at the European literature, everybody's blaming everybody because they don't want to be responsible for it. So there are multiple theories about where syphilis came from. One of the most pervasive is how it came from pre-Columbian cultures, and Columbus went over, met with them, and then brought it back, and that there is evidence for that however um they also find children with congenital uh, s- uh, syphilis in Metaponto Italy which is uh, a town near Pompeii at the time of Pompeii and there's also a um monastery in England called Hull where they see people who look like they have um bone affects of syphilis um that are buried, and it was before Columbus came back from the New World. So there's evidence for it, definitely being in Europe and other locations before um, Columbus. Um, part of the reason why Columbus and the New World get blamed is because there was already syphilis in or a variety of syphilis in the new world. Um, and perhaps Steve can speak to that, but uh, penta and yaws and bejil.
2: Yeah, so there are actually several related diseases. One is called bejil, which is uh, found in arid areas of the world and uh, causes skin lesions, and it's transmitted during childhood. Yaws is uh, transmitted usually in, in uh, say, the teen years. And that's found primarily in tropical areas such as Africa. And then there's a third disease called pinta, that is also transmitted just by skin-to-skin contact. And that's found primarily in South America. Um, And I guess my favorite theory of the origin of syphilis is that it actually was an animal disease probably millions of years before humans were on the earth. And we can find yaws organisms in uh, uh, primates such as uh, chimpanzees and uh, baboons, and it can be sexually transmitted. And that organism is very closely related to the human uh, pathogen that causes syphilis. So um, my guess is that the origin was actually uh, due to an accidental transmission between animals and the early humans. Mm. You know,
0: and you, you mentioned something um, when we were talking before the filming of this podcast, um, you said that like uh, syphilis has been evolving, you know, longer than we have, you know, since as far back as we know, it's been evolving and adapting to new situations. And I find that interesting because a lot of people think of diseases like they're out to get us you know, it's like, oh no, they're they're attacking us. They're like some sort of evil force. But in reality, they are living organisms that adapt to survive. Mm-hmm. And I just find that interesting.
1: Yeah, they, most living organisms, like we talk about that in Death by Natural Causes, where there's venomous and poisonous things. They that puffer fish did not wake up this morning and think, ha ha, I'm gonna go get that human. <laughs> they are doing their own thing, and they have their own their own system, their own habitat, their own ecosystem, their own life, where they are um, eating and. <laughs> trying to keep from being eaten, or eaten that uh, has nothing to do with us, but we always talk about things in terms of toxicity to us, and so it's sort of unfair for some of these these more potent animals, these more toxic plants and animals, to think of it that way. Um, And I wondered, uh, in 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, we have two populations of people. One is the pre-Columbian population. One is the European population. They both have their own version of syphilis happening. However, when those two populations mix, the version that's in the New World and the version that's in Europe – Uh, are being introduced to different sets of humans who have never seen that disease before. And so they don't have any resistance, any immunity. They don't have any protection against it. So that was like, that's my theory, is that they ended up being introduced to something that was similar, but different enough that the, the version of syphilis that they encountered was like, hey, look at this. This is a new territory. And it sort of exploded from there.
2: And I think that's why a controversy still exists in terms of where it originated, mm-hmm. um, because there's this huge outbreak that occurred that was recognized in Europe. Um, it was called the Neapolitan disease and uh, the Spanish disease, depending on uh, where you thought it came from.
0: So if you weren't Spanish, it was a Spanish disease. Oh, if you correct. weren't from Naples.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everybody was blaming somebody else.
0: So that's interesting. And So it may have been the simple fact that, you know, there were different strains of this disease, which people had uh, become resistant to in Europe and the Americas, respectively. But of course, when they're introduced to a new environment where people hadn't been coexisting with this disease, co-evolving with this disease all the time, you know, at least their, um, their uh, what's it called, their body systems, um, it's particularly virulent, I suppose. That's interesting, and I and the the accounts are really horrific. I mean, they talk mm-hmm. about it sounds like a zombie apocalypse going on, you know, in the 1500s. Right? There's people with their faces falling off, wandering around, and people are freaked out by this
1: because it's new. They've never seen it before. They just recently we had a plague. Things are not going great. Um, and at some point, it also has to do with the politics of Europe at the time because uh, everybody was sort of doing a land grab and trying to, you know fight with various regions trying to expand their territory. Um and so military groups were being constantly shuffled from place to place. And wherever military groups go, usually (laughs) and Chris just nodded. Yeah, usually there is a an introduction of ladies of the evening in some way, shape or form, or you find a bride to be in the new town. So you're passing whatever you've got onto a new population and, and things are just sort of mixing.
2: And many of those soldiers, soldiers were uh, mercenaries. Yes. And so they came from different countries. So you are it's almost like getting on a jet and going to a different country mm-hmm. and uh, transmitting the disease in that way.
1: And, they, and it was estimated at some point 20% of the world's population had uh, the sexually transmitted infection version of syphilis because of all the different political issues that were going on and all these people traveling from one place to the other.
0: Goodness. And it's just soldiers wandering around and getting to know the locals, I guess.
1: And, but then after that battle is the over, then you go home and then you talk to all your people from where you're from. And it's just constantly.
0: That's interesting. But and this touches on something that I find fascinating because there is a, a social aspect to studying syphilis that's very important. There are stigmas associated with the disease, and there are particular people who tend to be kind of. Uh, Extra attention is shown on them. They are they're blamed for the disease. Yes, very much so. Let's talk a little bit about that.
1: Um, it, pick pick a group. They've been blamed at some point. Um, so one of the theories about how syphilis got spread was that a population of uh, Jews were expelled and ended up traveling to a city in Italy and sort of camping out outside the gates. Um, and they were the ones who gave that town syphilis. Didn't have anything to do with soldiers, didn't have anything to do with your own behavior. Um, Another group is um, women. Even up until the 70s probably, um, definitely through World War II, it was – don't sleep with those women. They are unclean. Now, it, they are sleeping with men who are 50% of the population. They're passing this thing back and forth. Um, another um, medical journal that I saw recently described um, – black population as being the carriers of the disease so like whatever group has been picked on in history is the group that is going to be blamed for whatever the problem was not just this problem
0: that's crazy. And and in earlier conversations when we were planning this podcast, you mentioned some specific events. For example, I believe it was when World War One, mm-hmm. there were laws passed um, about where women could be at a certain point. Is yeah, that correct?
1: That is one hundred percent true. Um, they were trying to keep soldiers available and active for military duty. Um, because people who were out and, you know, they were in the hospital were a problem because your forces were fluctuating and then you also have to transport individuals to catch up with their group. So it's just sort of a problem. So um, just before World War One, but definitely through World War One and World War II and the Korean War, the military and the U.S. government actually had a lot of funding in place to prevent soldiers from getting sexually transmitted infections. And they also had detention camps set up for women who were suspected of having, um, being dirty is what they called it, having infections of some kind. And syphilis was one of the major ones that they were looking at. How did they figure that out?
0: Like how, <laughs> it sounds like a lot of just kind of prejudging was going on.
1: It was 1,000%. So a couple ways, like like a couple specific instances is if they were known prostitutes. So like that, okay, great, low-hanging fruit. But there were other um, instances where they were taking women who were unescorted so if you were traveling by bus and you got off at your wherever you were headed you got off the bus at the other end of your trip and there was nobody there to meet you and you were just going to walk home to your house you were considered unescorted and clearly you were there for the wrong reasons so you may be arrested and detained and have a forcible medical examination uh another woman was married And she was a waitress, which was also seen as a shady occupation, and she ate at the lunch counter uh, and her job by herself after her shift was over and then went and caught the bus. And so clearly she was identified as being like, "Mm mm-mm that is not correct
0: she's not not in a group so that means that she's there's something wrong with her
1: yeah and then they also had there were all sorts of terrible things that happened um so they had these detention facilities but it was also pre-segregation so they had detention facilities which were like camps like medical camps for uh white women and then black women just went to jail um so you know one you're forcibly detaining people who've done nothing wrong and to you are segregating the population, you're not treating them equally, so they were very mistreated.
0: And this kind of brings me to another kind of social aspect, um, but it also has to do a little bit with the science, because there was a lot of experimentation, we've discussed that going on in the early 20th century, trying to find a cure or a treatment to this disease. Now this led to some somewhat inhumane uh, experiments going on, am I right?
2: Yeah, so the most famous of those is the Tuskegee study. And uh, I should say that predating that back in the early 1900s, there was a group led by somebody named Dr. Jestlin in Denmark who also studied uh, patients um, after they were identified as having syphilis. without So he did not uh, treat these patients and just followed them to see um, how the disease progressed. And what he found was essentially the information that we have now regarding the outcome of late syphilis. Now, in the case of the Tuskegee study, this was uh, starting, I believe, in the 1930s. And um, in that case, they felt that the African-American population uh, had a different progression of disease than what was seen in white individuals. And so they were essentially not treating a group of uh, patients, to see um, how their disease progressed. The part where that really became uh, unethical, uh, it was probably unethical to start with because things such as Salverson were available. But when penicillin became readily available, um, these patients still were not treated uh, for a number of years. And so I think that's... Widely uh, recognized as being one of the primary examples of unethical treatment of um, a study population.
1: Yeah, and there were also two studies in the 1910s, 19 yeah, it's probably 1910 to 1920 that were done on children so there was one guy who was intentionally injecting syphilis into children um, and using them as study subjects without the parental consent and then there was another guy if they had uh, babies that had congenital syphilis they were drilling into their schools to see if they could uh, test fluid for evidence of um, the spirochetes in the brain and the, 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 the fluid in your brain <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, cerebral spinal fluid. Yes. That's the, there
0: we go. Brain couldn't juice. get all my words together. Yeah. Sounds better than brain juice, huh?
1: Yeah. Brain juice. <laughs> it's good for you.
0: So, all right. So there's, so there's crazy stuff going on, people being infected and then, you know, not treated because we just want to see what happens. And what's fascinating about this is that there's th- these various theories that go around like, Oh, it was the Jews. It, it, it's African-Americans. I don't know. It's interesting that like, it's it's, they pick out people who are like vulnerable. Yes,
1: absolutely.
0: So, and they say, oh no, th- it must be, you know, it must be their fault and there's scientific reasons for it. But really, it's just, you know, because they just want to do something and that's easy, I guess, to do to, to it's blame scapegoating people.
1: people. And then the people who have the least access to medical care are the people who get blamed. So,
2: in the 1950s, there was another study in Sing Sing Prison um, where. The inmates were inoculated with trepanium pallidum and um, then observed for the development of disease. In that case, they did treat every uh, inmate that had been infected. So um, it was perhaps a little more ethical. But really, um, all of these studies put together are uh, what led to the development of the human subject uh, rules that we have currently which I believe are very stringent so that uh, such things cannot occur. You cannot, for example, um, use prisoners um, in human subject studies.
1: It's like we've made terrible mistakes in the past so we can get it right going forward.
0: Well, and that's a good thing, I guess. That's one good thing, I guess, that's coming out of all of this. Now – I'd like to fast forward in time a little bit to talk about, once again, you know, the state of syphilis today and what's going on. And I'd like to talk about actually what you're doing right now, uh, Dr. Norris, because you are studying the disease, right?
2: Yes, actually, I've been studying uh, syphilis since 1975. And so um, I began working in a laboratory. It was a job. And my job was to try to culture the organism. And so... This organism, Treponia pallidum, uh, never hits the ground. It's always found in people. And so um, it can't survive very well in a test tube. And so um, at that time, I thought that was an intriguing project. Well, here I am 45 years later, and um, I'm still working on the same thing. But uh, just last year, we had a breakthrough where we are able to grow the organism in a test tube, and with a little help from rabbit cells.
0: wow! And that this is a big deal because now more people have a chance to analyze this disease. Am I right? You can, you can send samples out to more people, more people can study it. That's And we correct. know more about it.
2: Yeah, so up to um, last year, it was necessary to infect animals such as rabbits with the organism and then wait about two weeks and and extract the organisms out in order to study this organism. Um, if you imagine doing that with E. coli, uh, you know, that would you would say, you know, this is crazy. <laughs> um, with E. coli, you can grow up a culture overnight, you can uh, pick colonies, you can do all these things to genetically manipulate it within a week. And so now at least we have the possibility of doing similar things. Um, with this organism. So I'm anticipating that much more progress will be made in understanding. it.
0: And I'm curious, so now instead of doing it in the rabbits, is it all something that can be done separately? Um,
2: Yeah, we can uh, do it in a tissue culture. We transfer the cultures once a week. We've done that for over a year now and um, other labs have started the same process. So uh, we think it's going to take off and uh, What we're hoping is we can also get rid of the tissue culture cells, the rabbit cells, which will make it much easier so that potentially it could even be used in clinical laboratories to help in diagnosis.
1: And one of the reasons why that's such a big deal is like giving the example of E. coli, I want to say it's a 20-minute replication. Yeah, okay. So it's a 20-minute replication cycle. So you end up doubling your population in 20 minutes. For syphilis, it's a 30-hour process process. So it takes forever to get enough material to work with, and then you also have to keep it alive. And so if we know that antibiotics work on syphilis, then why is this important? Well, antibiotics may not always work on syphilis um, because, like you said, it's a living organism, and it's changing over time.
2: We've been fortunate that uh, it has not developed resistance to penicillin, which is the drug that's used most commonly. Um, But uh, it's possible that it may develop resistance in the future,
0: mm. and that's something that's a big deal because for a number of diseases, including things like smallpox and things like that, it's not guaranteed that we'll always be able to treat them as effectively as we do now. Um, it's kind of an almost arms race, I guess, against the diseases. Would you describe it as that?
1: In some cases, but not well, all very ones. much so.
2: Because uh, uh, what we've found is that as we develop new antibiotics, that uh, more and more of the organisms develop resistance. It turns out that those resistance mechanisms have been around for millions of years, and the organisms in the soil used it to combat each other. Um, But uh, because we're selecting for those organisms that have, for example, beta-lactamase, which breaks down penicillin, then uh, we can uh, essentially amplify that population until Most of the organisms are resistant, and so we have to find a new drug. Mm -hmm. And it's been very difficult to do that.
0: Well, all right, so unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. But thank you all for coming in to talk a little bit about syphilis and how we should actually all care about it. And um, it's been very interesting to hear about how your work, Dr. Norris, is actually helping us in this arms race against disease. And for anybody curious to know more about syphilis and a bunch of other natural things that can kill you, you can come see our exhibition, Death by Natural Causes, which Nicole Temple is a co-curator of. Thank you for coming in again.
1: It was delightful. I could talk about syphilis all day.
0: (laughs) And that's it for uh, today's episode of Beyond Bones. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope that the content on this episode has encouraged you to check out um, our future content. The next episode will be about the moon and moon exploration. We have Dr. Pat Reif from Rice University who was actually at uh, NASA during the heyday of the Apollo missions. Um, And she's gonna be talking with Dr. Carolyn Sumners, our Vice President of Astronomy, about uh, basically the importance of moon exploration and also the history of it. So it's gonna be really interesting. Um, And while you're at it, while you're listening to us, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and also leave a review. We're really interested to hear what you have to say. Also, if you have some free time and you're in Houston, come and check out our special exhibition, Death by Natural Causes. Today, we talked about one way that nature can kill you, but trust me, there are many more interesting ways, and you will find out all about them in that fascinating exhibit, curated by one of our guests today, Nicole Temple. Until next time, stay curious.